Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for uh, Tuesday, January 14th. We have a great guest today. Uh, Clint Margrave is here. He's been in Rattle about uh, a half dozen times, I'd say. I didn't count him up. But uh, he's one of our favorite poets, so it's going to be good to talk to him. And um, first, to start out, we're going to do a little warm-up poem here and make sure everything's working and everybody's settled in. I thought we would do a poem to start by uh, M.L. Liebler. Uh, we interviewed M.L. Uh, in issue number 36, if anyone wants to check that out. He's a Detroit poet, and um, we've published him a bunch of times. He's a really fun guy. I think he's a poet that uh, Clint Margrave would like, so I thought he'd be a good poet to uh, play today. And this is a poem of his called um, Allen Ginsberg's Dead. Allen Ginsberg's Dead. I know Allen Ginsberg's dead, and I want to write a poem for him just like everybody else wants to, but I can't help but think of my neighbor, who too died alone recently in his home of 30 years, and how he was a person who will never have a poem written in his honor or to his memory. He was a person who will never have his life enshrined in sound and symbol of verse or song. And I didn't know my neighbor either, but I want to remember him with verse and posy just the same. I want to celebrate his life as the important treasure he must have been as someone's husband, father, brother, friend. I want to do this simply because he lived. My neighbor wasn't famous, and I probably only saw him once or twice in all the years that I lived behind his back fence. But his words always made me amazed at the kindness of this world when he spoke softly to me while he tended his garden. I don't remember his words as memorable quotes spoken by a famous person it was just small talk spoken in the lexicon of the backyard. No howl or cottage or sunflower sutra, to be sure. But graceful words that rose and danced over the fence behind his red brick house. So while I would really love to write a poem for Allen Ginsberg just like everyone else, right now it seems more important for me to capture my neighbor's life just another person whom I never knew. I'll write it all down in a poem that he'll never read and his family will never see in print or hear at some public reading. But isn't that what poetry is all about? Images speaking to the unspeakable in our dreams as we lie awake in our sleep. And now, because I've shared this poem with all of you, we are all forever connected, all of our bones together, side by side in the rich graveyard soil of poetry and life. So once again, that was M.L. Liebler reading uh, his poem, Ellen Ginsberg's Dead. And uh, because you shared this poem, we're forever connected, all of our bones together, side by side in the rich graveyard soil of poetry and life. So there we go. Um, Ebel, here's this note, which is uh, from the interview, I think, in uh, issue number 36. This is, where, this is why M.L. Liebler started out writing poetry. When I'm in the second, second grade, grade, I start scribbling stuff. I don't know, it's kind of, you know, 
you guys know, being poets and writers, how it just it's in there. You can't do anything about it. But I but I had no idea, you know. And uh, I would get in trouble for it. You know, they would call my grandmother and say, you know, he scribbled some stuff, and we don't know what it is, but you know, he scribbled, and so you pay for the book or whatever. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. I remember that part. So you're scribbling in in, in books. In, in the books oh. and on anything. Okay. But not know, you know, having no clue. I know this sounds bizarre, but it's it's the truth. When I got to the fifth grade, I was doing this all the time. And scribbling and, and paper and so on and so forth and notebooks. When I got to the fifth grade, I remember having a a big textbook, an English textbook that had a pelican like on a post in the ocean or something. And when I opened that book, I noticed that it had things in it that had a lot of white space around it. And when I saw that, I um, I thought, well, that's kind of what I'm scribbling. What I'm scribbling isn't sentences. It has a lot of white space around it. So at that point, that's when I first was able to say, oh, it's a poem. Maybe I saw The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe in that book or something. And I just saw, and I thought, well, that must be what I'm doing. So it's a poem. Now, what's that? I don't know what that is. You know, I didn't read poems. <laughs> and in fact, you, you know, you guys probably say poem. You know, in Detroit, we say poems. <laughs> So that was ML Liebler. Uh, that was from issue number nine. And I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Now, moving on to today's guest, um, Clint Margrave, as I mentioned, is a poet who's appeared in Rattle about six times, I think. Um, poets Respond a couple times in the Adjunct Poets issue, too. Um, he's also in the current issue, and he's also in the forthcoming issue, uh, which is a tribute to Kim Adonizio. Uh, he took some workshops with Kim back in the day. So he's in that tribute section, too, coming out this spring. Um, Clint Margrave uh, is the author of two books of poetry, too, Salute the Wreckage, which just came out recently, and um, The Early Death of Men. They're both from New York Quarterly Books. And um, here he is. I'll bring him in now. Clint, Clint Margrave. How's it hey, going? Hey, <laughs> good. How you doing? Good, good. Um, so, so you're a, you're a California poet from L.A. Are you still in Long Beach? I'm in L. I'm in L.A. proper now. Uh, yes. Oh, really? Yes, it's very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I remember. Uh, I think the first time we met was at the um, Long Beach Poetry Festival, which is just amazing. Tony Hoagland read there. Tony Glogler, who was on a right. couple weeks ago, read there. And I think that is my favorite poetry event that I've ever been to. It was really a good good show you put on there. Yeah, um, that, you, did you just do the one year, or did you do more? We did it for four years, I think, mm -hmm. uh, from 2010 to 2014. And yes, that, uh, that, that, that night you read, that was a very, that was probably one of the, the best. Oh, it's funny. Those, I read. Yeah. I, I don't remember that. Uh, well, you <laughs> were there. reading I mean, at all. <laughs> but I remember... And Glogler. Uh, yeah, Glogler. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you want to start us out with a poem? Uh, sure. So since we're somewhat talking about my last collection, which is Salute the Wreckage, I thought I'd just begin with the uh, opening poem here, which sure. is called Origins. Remind me of something forgotten long ago. Is it the sky that makes the ocean blue or the ocean that makes the sky blue? And why on a rainy day do they both look gray? If nothing can escape a black hole, can God... And if he really made the world in six days and is perfect in all-knowing, why did it take him so long? And where did he go? 
I don't think the universe bends towards justice, but I think it ought to. At eight years old, I used to stand in the shower feeling overwhelmed by the question of existence. I used to stare at my bedroom wall just to remind myself I was still looking. What happened before the Big Bang? Or is it what happens before the Big Bang stays before the Big Bang? And why does the Dalai Lama wear a watch? What is time anyway to a humble Buddhist monk? Who am I? asked the child. Who was I? asked the grandfather. Who will I be? asked the college student. I am one person. I live on one planet, orbit one star, rent one house. How can E.O. Wilson say ants didn't change for 110 million years when I've already changed 50 times since breakfast? And what will become of the billions of cells born inside my body this week? Will they make me fat or turn into cancer or conceit? Will they make my beard more white than it already is? 100 billion humans dead since the birth of our species, and I'm still mourning the death of my father. How many dead dads is that? Dead lovers, dead siblings, dead friends. And of the hundreds of millions of neurons targeting my synapses right now, how many will misfire? How many will make me sad? The sky is not blue. It only appears to be. And Dawn is just a girl I know. There never was a chicken before the egg or an egg before the chicken. There never was a first mother or first father, a first baseball game, a first kiss, a first word. The first baby was never born. The first man never walked the earth. And that was the opening poem, Origins, from... uh... Clint's most recent book, Salute the Wreckage, which just came out maybe a year ago. Is that how old it is, Clint? Uh, yeah, maybe four years ago. <laughs> it's time for a new one. I'm is it four thinking. years ago? Yeah, it's been oh, four wow. Years. Well, I didn't realize that. I should have looked at the date. One thing I noticed looking at it is you have no blurbs. And yes. um, in your bio, I'll, I'll put it on the screen here, about the author, uh, Clint Margrave, lives in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> um, so, so why... Uh, why did you do that? Why no blurbs? I know your first book did have blurbs. My first book did have blurbs. The second book, I just didn't see the necessity of them. I, I, there's a number of reasons. Some of them are personal. I hate asking people for blurbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I wanted the book to sort of be its own artifact without advertisements on it, on the back, you know, or, or whatever. I wanted it to be its own sort of work of art. And I didn't, and I also don't, I don't know. I don't know how effective they are anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I don't dislike them. I mean, I, I have a novel coming out. I'm, I'm getting blurbs, but it's more for the publisher, I think, than for me. But um, I don't know. I kind of like the idea of just not having them. And, you know, if you, this might sound a little pretentious, but uh, if you've ever looked at, you know, books made, published in Europe, and, you know, usually they're just the book. They might have a blurb somewhere, but not usually on the book or anything. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, why not make it its own? artifact yeah i was wondering your thinking because i we don't do blurbs for um, our chapbook series either and it's for the same reason i think just a, a poem on the back or nothing is better yeah. than them um, yeah just although the one thing it does is it lets you like cram for an interview because if i don't know what the book's about and i haven't That's read true. it yet i could just say what uh you know tony hoagland said it was about right and and take his word for it and say oh yeah when the fireworks were raging and the dinosaurs and stuff like that yeah. um 
So <laughs> uh, let me say, uh, if anybody has any questions for Clint Margrave, this is a, this is a once a week we're, we're getting to know, sit around and uh, talk to a poet. And you're part of it, too, watching live. So if you have any questions for Clint, leave them on the chat screen over YouTube, and I'll pass them along. Um, so, Clint, uh, why don't we do, like, two more poems, and then uh, we'll okay. keep it rolling. Okay. Um, that last poem, you know, sort of dealing with whatever, big philosophical issues or whatever. But what I try to do in this book is trade those things off, like the scientific with more of the personal. So um, this next poem is actually the second poem in the book. Uh, it's called Lost. I was 10 when my mother left me at the grocery store. I must have only been a couple hours. I didn't take it personally, spent the time looking for a coin so I could call her on the payphone. Now, 30, day, 30 years later, it's she who feels left somewhere. When she asks me to pick her up from my sister's house where she's lived the past five years, I want to go home, she tells me. But you are, I insist, knowing she means back to that place before old age and dementia and the death of her husband. I am, she says. I thought I lived somewhere else. It's not likely she'd remember ever leaving me at the grocery store or how when she finally realized it, she called the manager in a panic asking if he'd seen a little lost boy roaming down the aisles, wondering where his mother went. Another one? Yeah, there. yeah. yeah do okay, let, let me see here. Um, maybe I'm... Okay, yeah, I'll stick with this book for now. Make it easy on us. Okay. Well, I, here's a real short one. Um you know, I write a lot about my father, especially in the first book, The Early Death of Men. Um, not as much about my mother. So I, that one obviously being one of them. Um, here's one almost on the next page about my father and my family history. It's called Family Tree. It's on page 20. It was in Missouri during the late 19th century. There were three brothers, my great-great-uncles, one served in the House, one in the Senate. The other got hanged for stealing a horse. So you already mentioned um, the philosophical. And mm -hmm. the thing, I don't know, now doing these, uh, these podcasts, I realize that my impressions of poets' work and what they're doing doesn't always reflect their own impressions of their own work and what they're doing. And um, so maybe I'm just crazy and take this, uh, you know, however you want feel free to disagree with me. But what's really unique about your poetry to me is you, there seems to be a, a way that you're writing about philosophy in a way that most poets don't these days. If I had to like compare it's the feeling of reading your books to anything, it would be something like reading like Candide or something where they're, they're or maybe Camus, but they're anecdotes that have philosophical truth as like the impetus that you're going for. And um, it feels like, unlike a lot of poets who are writing today, it feels like when you have personal stuff, um, you know, you, you draw from your own personal life, like everybody does, it feels like that's like secondary to the message that you're putting across. Do you, mm. do you, think, that's, do you think that's true? Um, or, and, and is that something you consciously do? Or I don't think any of it's conscious necessarily mm -hmm. in that way. I certainly don't feel like, especially with the personal stuff, I don't feel like, uh, maybe there is, maybe, I don't know, maybe there is something like that there that I want to talk about s the bigger things. Yeah. Even it, in, rela uh, not that that's, you know, 
a poem about my mom, of course. My mom's important, right? But mm-hmm. but what does it all mean, you know, to live a life, to be on earth? You know, all the, yeah. ever since I was a kid, I would ponder these things. Who am I? You know, you're not supposed to keep pondering that as you get older. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be adult and just, you know, forget about it. But I still ponder these things. Yeah, that's what, that's kind of what I mean. It seems like all these poems, like no matter what you're writing about, it seems like you're trying to get at the why are we, who are we here, what's the meaning? Like it's always the big questions that you're sort of angling at from different directions. And that seems to be always like a focus, um, at least when I read your work. Uh, even like a poem like like we had the two about adjuncting. They were just kind of funny, situational kind of poems about being an adjunct. But there was still like a bigger message that was slipped into those anecdotes. Um, I... I like that analysis. I mean, I think that might be true. You know, I mean, half the time that it's probably unconscious or, you know, I'm not conscious of it. Uh, especially like with, with those poems, I'm definitely not conscious of it. Like with the <laughs> adjunct one. Um, but I think some of the other ones more obvious, maybe to me even that I'm, I'm interested in something bigger. Mm-hmm. With that. So, so what's your, what's your process like then? Do you have, you know, do, do you ha- are you inspired by events and then you want to write about it? Do you sit down and, something comes to you how does that work i can be yes um you know i've i'm also a fiction writer and i've always sort of gone back and forth with that so with poetry it's really weird because i try one i mean poetry is weird and you can't really have the daily routine like you do with fiction although i try so what i do a lot of the time is free write ideas and especially when I'm working and, you know, I got very little time. I'll get up five in the morning usually and uh, get pumped up on a little coffee and just write for 20 minutes before I take a shower, go to work. And then then much later I'll come back to it and revise. So that's the way I've been doing it with with a lot of the poems. Some poems hit you, you know, anyone who writes. Occasionally that happens and it all goes well and it's easy. Mm -hmm. It's not normally the case, but... uh, uh, normally I write some shitty draft or just some shitty, really like two pages of nothing, whatever. I, I, I allow myself to just let it go wherever it's going to go. Mm-hmm. I don't try to direct it in any way. Later when I revise, I do. But just just try to get everything out that I can, really because I don't have time. <laughs> because you know, quite often that's the case. Mm-hmm. And do you... Um... Do you find that, that once you realize it's a poem, do you end up revising it and working it over and over? Or is it oh, sort yeah. of a, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot, a lot of revision. Most mm-hmm. of the time. Of course, there are the occasional easy poems. But, uh, yeah, I, it, it's interesting. It's never anything like what the free write. Well, in fact, sometimes it could be one line, you know, or something. But it, it, it does the job. And, and so I don't, when I have free time, I don't sit down and just stare at the blank page. I have stuff to go back and by the time I get back there, I have space from it, too. So I can look at it more objectively and see what might work as something or what's just a waste or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's been helpful. And it keeps me in a routine where I don't feel like, oh, I should be writing. I should, you know, be doing something. Um, so there's that as well. You know, usually when I'm really... And I flake out on this too sometimes. It's not always like I do it every day, but I try to. And um, sometimes if whatever, something might happen the day before, I might read an article. I might take a note for something to explore in the morning when I get up to free write about it. 
just so I, I'm not stuck even then, you know, so I have something to at least sort of go off of. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so she mentioned ideas a few times. Do you, so it starts with an idea and then do you like play with it and, and, or do you sort of know where it's going before you start? I don't think I ever know where it's going before, mm-hmm. I, before it starts. It's usually just like, oh, this might be something interesting to write a poem about. Or that sounds like a great, you know, you, uh-huh. yeah. uh, it doesn't mean it. a lot of time. Usually sometimes the more directed I am and I'm like, I know I want to, it doesn't work out as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I need a little bit of that chaos yeah. to get somewhere interesting. Yeah, well, I think that's what's required. I think you need to have some kind of thing that you don't understand or don't know you yeah. under, how you understand, like some connection that you can't really make. You know, right. like like why is this interesting to me? And then right. you sort of figure it out as you go. It's just how it seems to me. For for everybody I talk to, it, it seems kind of yeah. like that's how it works. Yeah, it seems most most writers say that. You know mm-hmm. that it's just it's always just just follow through. You know, and just see yeah. where it, where it takes you. Surprise yourself, right? Uh huh. Yeah, well, why don't you read like a couple more? Okay. Um, we're talking about ideas, so I'm going to read, actually, this is a newer poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, not from the book, but it was uh, recently published in the Three Penny Review. But I'm sitting in this room right now that actually used to be my bedroom uh, until we switched rooms, but we had we share a wall with our neighbors. And uh, so this was this this is one of those things, this was very much inspired by that, because uh, they stay up later than us sometimes, and we can just hear them, right? So uh, this is one of those poems I woke up the next day, and somehow it just all came together. Can't explain it. But uh, this is called Once I Shared a Wall with God. I could hear him vacuuming late at night. Who does that? He was constantly rearranging furniture, opening and closing drawers, sliding hangers in the closet, banging things around. I never really heard his voice because he lived alone. Occasionally, just the deep rumble of him clearing his throat. It's not his fault, I told myself. The walls are thin. These floors crack at every step. The rooms are echo chambers. I can adjust. In the mornings, it was silent. God liked sleeping in. But at night, I cursed the world until I finally had to confront him. I thought about leaving a letter to spare us both the awkward conversation, but I wanted to make sure he understood. I'll be nice, I said as I rang his bell, but if it keeps on happening, I'll have to tell the landlord. Nervous as I was, I wanted God to know he'd been a bad neighbor, that he had little regard for others, that this universe was something we both shared. I'm sorry, I wanted to hear him say, I'm so sorry, but nobody answered the door. So with, with that poem, um, just since we we're talking about the process a little bit, like there's that sudden ending, you know, where it's not really what you expect. And, right. you know, reading the poem when, I, you know, when I'm on the second to last stanza there, I kind of assumed that the poem's going to go on and then it sort of cuts off. I was wondering if that was a revision and you originally wrote more. Or, That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I I didn't sit down and write this exactly how it is. I mean, it was a free write, and, but it was a short free write that it almost sort of came, you know, I didn't have to go beyond that. I think I realized when I hit that part, it must have been in the original draw. I'd have to look, but um, 
that that part must have been there. And I must have thought, oh, that's a good place to stop my free write for the day. I'll go to work now. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it just worked, I guess. Yeah, well, it, it definitely does. It was, it was unexpected, too, I think, mm-hmm. in that way. Um, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Clint, uh, leave them in the chat. And if you're watching and enjoying this, please do click the like button um, and subscribe. We do this every Tuesday, hanging out with some poets and um, getting to know them on a personal level in their own living rooms and bedrooms, usually. Um, so, Bun Kung, tu- Bun Kong Tuan, how do you how do you say uh, his name? Do you know how to say his uh, name? I don't. He's a good friend of mine, and I I know for years I say Bun Kong, <laughs> but I know it's probably not. Yeah, I've I've never met him in be. person, um, but but I've known him for a long time too, and and we've published him once or twice at least. Anyway, he says um, he'd like to hear us talk about contemporary poetry. And uh, who some of your favorite poets are that writing today? Ah, uh, well, uh, I like you know. I mean, we just lost Tony Hoagland, who was a big influence. In, I, I like his stuff. Uh, living living writers today. Um, it changes, of course. Mm-hmm. I don't like a lot of American contemporary poets, in all honesty, except. People that I know, actually, I mean, it sounds like I'm just bullshitting, but people that I know actually really, um, people like Alexis Fancher and um, I think you had Francesca Bell on here. And um, um, but I'm trying to think. I have to look back at my books here. Uh, thanks, BK. No, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question for me too. Course, I mean, of course, Kim Kong Tuan, Tony Glogler, you know, all my friends. Uh, but also, recently, I've really been into um, uh, Adam Zagajewski. Oh, really? The poet for mm-hmm. some reason. Hmm. I've been reading a lot of random Eastern European writers or Polish writers that I can't think of all the names at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, always been a big fan of Charles Simich. Um, who else is writing today that, and, and uh, what do you, what do you think you look for in a poem as a reader, as opposed to as a writer? Like, why do those poets that, that move you or interest you do that? Like, what is it about their poems that there are some definite, definite things, uh, simplicity, uh, simplicity of language, clarity, you know, I mean, look at someone like Charles Simich, right? I mean, what I do like about the Eastern European writers, and, and Charles Simich obviously is American, but he comes from a Serbian background, right? Um, there's a little hint of absurdity mm-hmm. in their work, which I like. It's a little playful. Um, so the simple and short. <laughs> I don't like long poems. Uh-huh. I, I, you know, maybe I'm a philistine, but uh, I just I like brevity in poetry. And I try. I mean, I know the first poem I read was pretty long, but that's probably the longest poem. Well, yeah, long by your standards, but it's still only yeah, two and a half pages. Uh, but in general, even when writing, I try my best to make a poem fit on one page. Mm-hmm. So I just really don't like, and, and I just really don't like. I get bored. I, yeah. I don't know why. I'll read an eight hundred page novel and be fine. You know, Moby mm-hmm. Dick is one of my favorite books, which I I talk with some people and we say it's it's like a poem. It's like a six hundred page poem, but Somehow that experience is different than um, when I open a book and I see, I see a lot. I just I just go okay next, you know. <laughs> but if I open a book or look at a poem in a magazine and it's short and looks kind of clean, the lang- I'm interested mm-hmm. just even by that to 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 read it. 
Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about too, because one of the things that your poems are is, is simple, clean language where there's no obfuscation at all. It seems like your one of your goals is to not hide anything of your intentions. You know, there's no sense of um, what is he talking about. Like you know, you know, you know the situation as we're moving through. You know, you know, we do the critique of the week on our um, on our Facebook, and one of the main problems with a lot of the poems is just that you don't know where you're situated within the poem. You know, you don't know who's speaking and where we're present and, um, and, and what our relationship is supposed to be to the speaker, you know, mm. and your poems are always very clear. I was wondering too, if that is, um, you know, something that you go for. So obviously it is. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm always successful, but I, I, even more now, I think I try to do it even than some of the earlier books. Um, mm-hmm. You know, more and more, I find I find my poems are getting shorter and and just more exact in that way, uh-huh. which I'm I'm willing to go that way, more minimalistic in some sense, maybe even a little more absurd in some sense, um, which I think I'm okay with at the moment. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll try to challenge myself at some point and do <laughs> long epic poem. I don't, I doubt it. But, uh... uh-huh. Well, it's interesting to hear your your um, favorite poets because the influence is is pretty oh. obvious when you look at your stuff. You know, I've just thought of another uh, something I didn't even bring up with asking about these poets. I mean, you know, two huge influences on me come from Long Beach, and one of those would be Gerald Laughlin, and and certainly his style. I think, I mean, he you know he was a colleague, he's a teacher of mine at one point, not a poetry class, but you know I, I've studied his work quite a lot, and it's always very simple and humorous, short. You know, I come from that school and stand-up poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, Let I me also ask, like Fred Voss's work quite a lot, too. He's, uh, with with another... Lachlan, that's, he's a poet I haven't really gotten into, actually, even though he's pretty local, um, and I've met him a few times. What book would you recommend for somebody getting to Lachlan for the first time? Because he's, oh. he's one of the more underground poets that most people might not know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, these days, yeah. Um, probably the Firebird poems, mm-hmm. I think, is... Um, I really liked his book, The Life Force. Uh, I think it's called The Life Force Poems as well, a uh, similar title. But uh, I like those two collections. One one is an earlier work. I think it came out in the early 80s. Um, and then The Life Force Poems came out, I think, in the late 90s at some mm-hmm. point. But yeah, he's definitely a, been an influence. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, could, you could see that too. Uh, okay, so let's read a couple more poems. I cut you off. I was going to have you do two. And I cut you off. So maybe two, two now. Okay, let me see where I'm at here. Maybe I'll do one from the first book, The Early Death of Men. In fact, this is a... This is a slightly long... So there's, there are slightly longer poems. After I said that, of course, <laughs> I realized I picked a few longer ones to read. So who knows? Maybe I don't know one. Uh, this is called Room, and it's on page 56. Room. Whenever I buy a cup of coffee, I always appreciate how the barista will ask, do you need room? And I think, what a better world it'd be if we all just did this. You're at work, the stress piled up, when the boss nudges you, pops the question, and off you go home for the week. Your lover, after spending days with you, wakes up and at the nod of your head without saying anything, gets dressed and leaves. You're on the freeway, about to miss the exit, when the driver in the next lane sees your blinker, gently taps his brakes, and with a flash of his lights signals you're clear. 
Imagine what could happen at the borders of India and Pakistan, Israel and Palestine, China and Tibet, or the inner borders of harsh judgment and bitter regret. Imagine if the pilgrims had asked the Indians, Cortez the Aztecs, just before he turned around his ships. Imagine a suicide bomber ordering his last mortal cup of java at a Jerusalem cafe, doomsday device strapped to his chest, only to be astonished by the barista's question nobody in his terrorist training camp ever bothered to ask. It's a basic amnesty carried far beyond a coffee cup that whether or not it intends to be says a lot about the importance of allowing each other space to feel and think. Yes, I always tell the barista, even though I don't take cream. Because with room, nothing ever spills, creates a dark black stain, scorches me. Um, another? or Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's see why we're on this book. Oh, here's one that... This is called this is on page 66 and it's called the role of art. Art is an introvert. At parties it sticks to walls nobody notices. When it speaks it struggles to be heard. Like all who tell the truth art has few patrons is always offending somebody. Art is solitary, rebellious, abstract. It is not communal, and when embraced too fully, has a tendency to crash things down. Not wishing to be known, not wishing to be liked, not wishing the acclaim of its more popular cousin cliché, art is an outcast whose only role is to protect its value by doing everything for its own sake and hoping that it matters. Yeah, so those were two poems from... uh... Clint's first book, The Early Death of Men, that's available from uh, NYQ Books, too. And that was a great segue. It's sort of a sort of a everything's coming together here, because I wanted to ask you about um, lately, in addition to poetry, you've been writing a whole series of essays um, for Quillette. There's four of them about um, um, free speech and poetry. And um, you had the, the most recent one was about Camus and about creativity as a dangerous act. And um, and the first essay was about Rachel Custer, um, in, in, in addition to some other people. And she's here. She says uh, she'll write blurbs for fifty dollars, uh, <laughs> and everybody want to buy your book, so pay her up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but so so talk a little bit. Explain to me, uh, you know, why do you feel? Why were you compelled to write those essays? Because um, there's four. I think you said you have a fifth one that you're, you know, you've written already or something that's going to come out too. Um, I, I don't know about the fifth one yet, but uh, okay. Well, <laughs> but 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 why are you sort of drawn to this topic and feel so passionate about it? It is a good que- it is a good question. I I think um, I, I you would think I have a clear cut answer here <laughs> after writing four essays, but I just see it as a real injustice. When um, I guess if I have a cause, this is it. You know, everyone has certain causes, I guess, for some reason. Mm-hmm. It's very important. I mean, I, I'm a writer, so, you know, free speech matters to me. And, and it boggles my mind that there are other writers today 
you know, artists who don't seem to care about that mm-hmm. or defend it. And uh, it drives me a little crazy uh, because, I don't know, when I grew up, the people who were defending free speech were always the artists, you know, and, and, and I know they are a lot of the time still today. I'm not saying they're not, but there are certain factions that um, are not doing that. And um, I, I, I guess I also have an anti-authority streak and I don't like it when people tell you you can't do something or you have to behave. A, you know, it reminds me a lot of the fundamentalism of the 80s with the Christian fundamentalists and um, which I was always against mm-hmm. uh I, I i know that's not a great answer i <laughs> i i don't know exactly why i suppose in some ways well, well uh, in your last i just think it's important yeah yeah, yeah. In, in your last essay about camus and in, in his speech that he gave um everybody should go read that essay it's a really great great piece of which i wasn't familiar with um uh, but uh you, you say say you're fighting to keep art alive and that, that's really central to what what it is to me and why free speech is so important because to me, and and that's why I got into poetry in the first place myself is that poetry is this amazing, just art in general is this amazing way that we sort of tap into the subconscious and let, Mm -hmm. let the connections that we know, but we don't know, we know come to the surface and that's how we make meaning. And, and, you know, a lot of your poetry is sort of a quest for meaning. It seems to me, you mentioned, you know, um, trying to find your place in the world. And it seems to me that the only way we can find our place in the world is by um, tapping into that part of our brain that we don't access consciously that makes connections between things. And and that's how we sort of light the darkness of um, Mm -hmm. really the universe, because we're like the eyes and ears of the universe. And, in art is the way we make new spaces within the universe. And if you don't, um, and if you don't let yourself explore what you don't quite know clearly, um, and, and do that freely, you can't actually make art. And the other thing I always thought is that, um, you know, political poetry, when it has a message really isn't poetry, it's propaganda. And I think sort of the opposite of art, you could define art negatively mm-hmm. as art is the opposite of propaganda because there's not a message that you're trying to beat someone over the head with. Like you're searching for your own message. Right. And, um, and so to, to be able to explore the world that way is so fundamental to what we do. And it's the one thing that science can't do is, yeah. you know, we can, we can, you know, take the schema that we have and build on that and, and put things together, but we can't make newness. And, and only art can make newness. Yes. And, um, and so that's why art's so important to me. And um, that's why I feel so passionately about letting artists do whatever the hell they're going to do mm-hmm. and you know, look at the results. And maybe, the, maybe it sucks and maybe it doesn't do anything. Sure. But you have to let artists be artists. Yes. And in exactly what he said, everyone. That was very, <laughs> very well stated. Um, and it's not, I mean, yes, it is art, but it's also just truth. I mean, how are you going to have truth if you can't? talk about things you can and that exploration of uh truth so it's both you like you said the artist needs to explore things just to figure it out so does just a human right mm-hmm. to, how do we know anything i mean everything i i do feel like you know it's become a cliche but i do feel like you don't get anything else without free speech first and free debate and and mm-hmm. you know the ability to you, you don't really get art you don't get equality even you know this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere it comes from first the ability to have these discussions, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the freedom to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, freedom of speech is freedom of thought. I mean, that's really exactly, what, you know, exactly. you can't, you can't think, you know, in, 
unless you express yourself because that's the way our brains work. And, and you can't know that, you know, you have so many blind spots in your thinking too. You have to say your thoughts out loud and have pushback and see what you're missing because we have so many cognitive biases right. that make us, you know, believe in what we, um, you know, believe in what we already think. And, um, and we miss, you know, it's the only way to get to truth, like you, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see the, um, uh, it was Sam Harris and uh, Jordan Peterson when he was on Sam Harris's episode? Did you happen to watch yes. that well, one? On the podcast? Yeah, the, Sa Sam Harris's got, podcast. Where, where they the, went. The one where they spent like exactly. three hours talking about truth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were talking about truth and facts. Yeah. And I just wanted to scream the whole time because what it seems to me is that every, there's a way that every fact is like a lie by omission because it doesn't include all the other facts. And, uh, and truth is the truth that includes every fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and because our... I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Ian McGilchrist's um, uh, book, um, The Master's Emissary. I don't know if you've read that. But it's about, the, it's about the bifurcated brain and the way the left brain is so focused. And that's the one that's the linguistic center that we sort of think of as our consciousness. That's the voice we hear in our head. Um, but that has a very narrow focus, like a, you know, like, a, like a shallow focus camera where it can only see what it's specifically pointed at. And the right brain is the holistic brain that sees the connections and sees the way all the facts fit together. And, um, and so I think what writers do is that they um, find a way to turn off the left brain and stop being focused. So there's this meditative act. You know, we all have these rituals that we do. We all have ways we sort of access that meditative space where the right brain can take over and start controlling the language centers. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we find the connections and we find actual truth and not just facts, Yeah, it, it seems to me. And that's how they were sort of talking past each other because, <laughs> you know, I think at the center of what you're talking about is metaphor. Yeah. This is how metaphor functions. Mm -hmm. Met metaphor is a way of explaining that other side, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Neil Postman called it, a metaphor is an organ of perception. That's I just great. love that quote. It's in our Neil. That's why we have the Neil Postman Award for metaphor. Yeah, because that that yeah. quote. But uh... and you know, if you're too scientific, maybe the Sam Harris side, you know, was saw truth in another way, mm -hmm. exactly as facts, and you know, um, but there are other sorts of truths that lie within metaphor mm -hmm. that reveal things. They might not be literal, you know, in that sense. Well, obviously, they're not literal through metaphor, but. Uh, but still, right? That symbolic element um, also also reveals things to us. Do, do you think you you learn in the process of writing? Like, do you feel like it enriches your perceptions about the world? About the world, yeah, and about yourself too. Like, do you discover things about yourself? That, it, that's an interesting question. Um, I want to say yes. Yeah. It may take me years to realize that, though, or it may, you know, there may be something operating on an unconscious level when I write a poem or something like that, uh, that years later you go, oh, that's kind of what I was, was, but I, but I, I think writing is not just writing, right? So it's, it, it's you always in the world, you know, and, and your poems don't just start when you sit down to write them. Mm -hmm. Right there, when you're walking out in the street, when you're when you're five years old, when you're you know your whole life, you know, is is part of that. Um, so do I learn? I don't know. I, I guess as I learn about myself, that um, yeah, I don't know. 
I, it's a mystery. If I learn, I, I suppose I hope I learned something from from things. But uh, you know, when I think about my poems, I go, well, did I learn something from them? Maybe you explore a feeling. You know, you 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 learn something about how you're feeling about something. Uh, but I don't see it. I guess I don't see it as okay. as a learning experience. Interesting. In, in some yeah. Way. Yeah. Well, uh, while we're having this this sort of deep philosophical discussion, the, the peanut gallery is going on with Rachel and Kate oh, Hanson Foster and John Yunkins. <laughs> of course it is. Um, so, so just to, to shift gears a little bit, Kate Hanson Foster says, I like your glasses, but I heard you have 2020 vision. Let's discuss. <laughs> 2020 vision. I think she's saying you're, you have fake glasses. Oh. No, these are the real deal. The real deal. You can't you can't read without. But if you really want to talk about my vision, my clear, <laughs> you know, my clarity of my vision. No, or is she talking about the election? I have <laughs> no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> but we were we were worried because the um, d- Democratic debate is going on now. But we got plenty of people right. watching live, so nobody maybe they have uh, you know the, they don't care. Yeah, They've given up. Yeah, too. I think I have too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to read? Do you have? Uh, since I just brought that up randomly, right. and there's a debate going on, you have a poem about the about candidates. Yeah. Do you have that there? Yeah, you want yeah. to read that? I have it here. Okay, I'll get back into poems. Candidate, free speech is speech no one gets paid for. Gun control is how steady you aim the barrel. Same-sex marriage is just every marriage. I've built a wall between myself and others. Does that make me anti-immigrant? My heart is a middle-class refugee seeking asylum. I worry about the electability of my feelings. Can they be trusted? Is this first classified? Will my thoughts be indicted? Have I swiped too far left? I'm hoping for a personal revolution, not a political one. I'm hoping for the polls about mortality are all wrong. What's emoji for catharsis? And why, when I hear ISS, do I always think ISIS? When I read encryption, I only see crypt. Apple hasn't developed the technology to disable death. But maybe after 10 failed passes, even hope resets. Does that mean I'm pro-life? I don't want to make any more choices. Yes. Yeah, so, so who are you voting for? No, just kidding. Don't tell uh, me. <laughs> I don't want to make any, any more choices. Uh, uh, no, I mean, obviously, this is one of those things. Well, you know, I think I wrote this during the last election, right? And it became for a mm-hmm. rattle response poem. And, uh, you know, we were all just so tired of it, uh, everything. And I, uh, I thought, who am I anymore? Like, who am I personally? Like, who... <laughs> You know, what is any of the, oh, you know, free speech, all this, the gun control, all the issues, you know, who, what does all this mean to me as a, per, like, who am I as an individual after all this, you know, after you clear away all this stuff? Um, so I think that was what instigated this poem. Um, and then I just had a little fun with it, I guess. Uh, let me ask, I, I kind of skipped over, um, like who you are as a person, um, I, <laughs> but like, but but so so where did you come from, and uh, how did you get into being a writer? Like when did that when did that happen? Did you, is there a time you knew you wanted to be, or um, did it just did you always find this interesting? 
I did. I, as a kid, I wrote sto- a lot of stories. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was 10. My dad had an electric typewriter he'd bring home on the weekends. And I would sit there all day long. And it was just a good feeling. Much better than it feels now sometimes, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. I just remember, you know, I was free. I was a kid. I wasn't worrying like, oh, is this going to get in rattle or something? No. But, uh, <laughs> not that I worry about that when I write anyway. But, you know, is this any good? I didn't have that critical faculty i just wrote and if that was probably really the best it ever felt you know just just enjoying it and um so i did i was always writing and then i had a short as a kid i was a child actor um oh you were yeah so i did well you got to tell that story yeah nothing interesting nothing well, you know, well, what was it we got to be able to look it up one i wasn't a very good actor the most interesting thing i ever did i was on the johnny carson show once oh really and it wasn't i didn't really even have any lines i wasn't an extra but i was in a scene you mm-hmm. know they were rehashing pretending it was johnny's first episode with a bunch of kids um so that was the most interesting thing i ever did as far as that goes but i wasn't a very good actor but i do think I spent a lot of time reading scripts and things like that. So that was always there. I was an avid reader as a child. I loved reading as I still do. Um, So all that was having effect. And then I became a teenager and got into music and uh, was more into music for many years than writing. But I think it still had an effect um, and probably helped me with writing Mm -hmm. too, obviously with rhythm and, and musicality and things like that. Um, I think I wrote an essay for Rattle. You did. I was just going to say about uh, punk rock and yeah. So go find out about the Smiths and Mm -hmm. and the influence of the lyrics. So I, I I was always interested in words for some reason. It was always important to me, even, even when I was just, you know, listening to rock bands and, um, it's important what they were saying, what they had, that, that it was important to have something to say. And I don't know if this was just me being a product of the culture during the eighties as a young person, it, there was a few things that it really meant. It meant something to to have a message, to say something. I mean, I was really into the punk rock scene and the goth scene. And, mm-hmm. and it was very important to be authentic and to say the truth and and to be contrarian in some sense. Yeah, and, and you, have a, uh, you have a line in that Camus essay where you're like, you know, maybe if we let art live, there'll be the next Shakespeare or the next Sex yes. Pistols. <laughs> that was very controversial. Was it? Yeah. Of all the things I thought would be controversial about anything I write, uh, the biggest line was something about disco. Everyone was defending disco, you know, when the, when the article came out. And I was like, it's okay, you know, disco's fine. But, the, you know, and then someone was mad about the Sex Pistols line, too, you know. How can you, you know, Shakespeare and the Sex Pistols, they didn't get it, you know. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the secret. Don't read any comments. That's all you got to do. Know. Never read any reviews of your work. Never read any comments. Never, never look at Facebook reply or Twitter, Twitter replies. Just cut. I'm, that. A, I'm good at not engaging. No, don't city. even look. You just yeah. it feels so much better. Like we, uh, when we lived down in LA, we had a TV, you know, cable. We we cut the cord and got rid of it. Then we moved up here to the mountains, and we didn't even have TV reception, so we couldn't watch TV if we wanted to. Yeah. And when you cut that off you didn't realize how terrible it was. And when you cut off uh, looking at comment sections and looking at yeah. tweet yeah. replies, and I know. it feels the same way. It's like, oh, my God, I didn't realize how horrible this was. I know. Occasionally, I mean, occasionally I delete my apps, and I, <laughs> but I always download them again. You know, it's a uh-huh. vicious cycle. It is. It is addictive. Um, all right, do you want to read, like, maybe two last poems to close it out? 
Yeah, let me see. I'm going to read maybe a couple of the more recent ones. Or maybe three if they're short, because I know you do write short. Some of them might be. I'll read these. Well, maybe I'll read um, one long one first, and then I'll close out with a bit shorter ones. This is actually from the first book. It's not a new one. Uh, but since we're talking about art and all of this, uh, for once I actually wrote down the page numbers on a list. Oh, that's, it's really helpful. <laughs> I haven't done a reading for a while, but usually I'm flipping through my book. No idea. Um, this is called You Are What You Eat. I always thought it was more important what came out of your mouth than what went in. But I guess if you have to blame something for who you are, it might as well be what you eat. Of course, you are not that pastrami sandwich or garden burger you had for lunch yesterday. Any more than you are what shoes you wear, what you think at certain times of day, or what you do for a living. Still, if I could be what I eat, and if I could eat what I wanted, I'd eat nothing but the sentences of Ernest Hemingway, the sculptures of Rodin, the self-portraits of Egon Schiele, the paintings of Munch and Picasso and Modigliani, I'd eat all of France and Italy and Portugal and Spain. I'd eat the UK too and Japan and the entire Mediterranean. I'd eat the Musea d'Orsay and the bars of Long Beach, the grapes of Sonoma, the music of the jam. If I could really be what I eat, I'd eat peace and solitude, love and compassion, all the greatest things about our species books of poetry, philosophy, films and novels, walls with beautiful murals. I'd make meals out of symphonies, snack on sonnets, devour Melville's every page. I'd also eat the greatest scientific discoveries, Newton's gravity, Einstein's relativity, Darwin's origin of species. I'd eat string theory like string cheese, wormholes like they were made of gummy, nebulas like nectarines i'd eat the sun and all the gas giants rolled up inside the curvature of space i'd eat distant worlds and parallel ones too in the texts of every religion every god and goddess every job and judas gobble them all up until i'm fat and full and bloated and have to vomit them out just to find myself again That one's slight. So one more? Or yeah, two yeah, more? yeah. Okay. Whatever. One more. Up to you. I guess since we were talking about free speech, I'll, I'll read this, this one. Uh, it's called The Death of Free Speech. It was a closed casket, not the urn of ashes everyone expected. No cause was reported, no autopsy, nothing mentioned on television. No official statement from the government. No obituary. Nobody sent flowers or gave a eulogy. A few mourners stood hands over their mouths, but nobody said they were sorry or offered their condolences. Nobody said a thing. Well, Clint Margrave, thanks so much. That was a, a great, great way to end it, uh, round out the whole discussion, I think, on that one. All right, and thank you. Yeah, so um, once again, uh, Clint Margay was our guest tonight, um, and his two books are uh, 
Salute the Wreckage, which is out four years ago, apparently, even though I thought it was just last year. And The Early Death of Men, both from NYQ Books. So check those out when you can. And um, Clint Margrave, thanks again for, for being our guest today, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Okay, bye. Good night. Yeah, so that was our guest for today, Clint Margrave. Uh, as always, we have uh, open mic coming up if you're watching live on um, YouTube. But if you are listening to just the podcast, that is it for now. But next week, we have Sean Ballard and his uh, chapbook Flight coming up on the Rattlecast. Um, Sean's been in, he's in the current issue of Rattle. He's been in Poet Respond two or three times. He's um, from right here in San Bernardino, lives in Alaska now. He's been all over the world teaching poetry. Really cool poet. Um, we're looking forward to him next week, so tune in at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, January 21st, to see Sean Ballard. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>